Welcome to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. The SLA is a nonprofit, international, professional organization whose common goal is the understanding, advancement, and ethical practice of sports law. With over 1,000 current members consisting of practicing lawyers, law educators, law students, and other professionals with an interest in law relating to professional and amateur sports, the organization has a wonderful membership filled with experience, insight, and knowledge, giving podcast listeners a peek behind the curtain of the sports law world. For more information about the SLA, visit sportslaw.org. Today's episode is The Alston Case Decision, What It Means and Where It Might Lead. Join Bobby Hacker as he moderates a discussion of the impact of the decision with Allison Rich, Matt Mitten, and Tyrone Thomas as we look at the case from three separate perspectives. And now, here's your host, Bobby Hacker. Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the SLA podcast today, where we're going to talk about Alston versus NCAA, or NCAA as the NCAA likes to be called. Uh, the guests today on our call are Allison Rich, the current president of the Sports Lawyers Association, who is the senior associate director of athletics and the senior women's administrator at her alma mater, Princeton University. Allison has 25 years as an intercollegiate athletic administrator and sports lawyer, having spent time in the NCAA national office and is well regarded in the collegiate community. We also have Matt Mitten, a former Sports Lawyers Association president. He's the professor of law and executive director of the National Sports Law Institute at Marquette University. He's the co-author of five law review articles on antitrust application to collegiate sports. And he actually recently took part in a mock argument on behalf of the NCAA with a good friend of the SLA, Professor Steve Ross at Penn State. Our third panelist today is Tyrone Thomas, who's the co-chair of the sports practice group at Mintz Levin. Over the past 20 years, he's repped universities and student athletes subject to NCAA penalties and allegations and advised on Title IX compliance, student athlete privacy rights, and working on contracts for coaches and athletics personnel. He also provided governance level advice to Penn State and Baylor in those delicious NCAA investigations. So recently this week, which is pretty recently, the Supreme Court of the United States had a 9-0 decision in favor of the plaintiffs in Alston versus NCAA. And I'm sure we'll get to sort of the relatively limited nature of what this decision means. But I want to open with some thoughts on a quote from Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion. Nowhere else in America can business get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. Given that Alston was about educational benefits, I think this is a particularly interesting quote and seems to open up a door for further litigation. Anyone care to jump in? Matt, you talked to the U.S. Senate. Well, you know, I talked with them about a little bit different issue, which was the need for a uniform national law on, you know, NIL rights for, for all student athletes nationwide. You know, there's a little bit of a relationship to that now because it doesn't look like Congress is going to be able to enact any legislation by July 1st when we're going to have eight different NIL rights laws go into effect. 
and the NCAA is, of course, understandably concerned about any of the three divisions, you know, proposing or enacting or agreeing on NIL rights legislation because it will almost immediately be challenged, the restrictive portions of it, as violating, you know, Section 1 of the Sherman Act. And, of course, they're going to mention probably just that statement that you mentioned. So, so one thing that is certain is that Alston is going to lead to more antitrust litigation against the NCAA. There's already two pending cases challenging the current rules as, uh, you know, prohibiting student athletes from getting any NIL rights, the House and Prince litigation. Uh, that's pending. Uh, Discovery's been ongoing. That's going to get cranked up. And so we are going to see continuing antitrust litigation with unpredictable results, given how courts apply the three-part full rule of reason. Yeah, I, I just think when you hear a quote like that, um, it, it's striking uh, just because of the apparent unsolicited nature of it, um, just because that's not the question that was really before the court um, as, as presented in a majority opinion, um, you know, that the student-athletes did not appeal their portion of the ruling from the Ninth Circuit, but this is obviously a clear signal, at least from occurrence, of which way uh, that particular justice would, would lean. What I find, you know, kind of just reflecting big picture, and that's a great point there, is where we are now versus where we would have been 25, 30 years ago. You know, when you had a lot of the cases that went through historically where the NCA was put, you know, whether it's with the year of residence rule and things like that, that, you know, there was this great deal of reverence for what you had to do to have the system in place uh, for the NCAA to, to conduct competition and how that's eroded. And then you, you level that with obviously the revenue that's been generated, like and people are not blind for media contracts. Uh, and that has, I think, you know, obviously reached the judicial level. So it's something that, you know, even if we're looking at, if it were wise to think about now, that even if you're looking at how some of these cases may have been decided in, you know, the 90s and even early 2000s, that, you know, clearly the judicial appetite and view of this is different, that there's frustration that the athletes, you know, were kind of late in getting full cost of attendance, that there's frustration that some of the things that have been presented, uh, certainly by the Power Five conferences, uh, what they're doing in autonomy uh, could have been done years ago. So it's something that we are, I, I completely agree. This setup, we're going to hit, we're going to have more litigation. The Austin, Austin, just kind of the kickoff of that. You know, and even though, and I'm sure we'll go into it, that there's, you know, the limitation of this particular ruling, uh, we're still not off the, we're still not off the ground where, where this is going to end. Agreed. And, and it's troubling because of all of the opportunities that are available to current student athletes, like you say, Tyrone, that weren't available years ago. You know, the, there's this perception in the media and in the world that the student athletes are, are being taken advantage of, they're being exploited, they're being used, and there's nothing being given to them. And on the other hand, in reality, they're getting quite a bit out of this. You know, they are getting their education. There's quite a few uh, benefits that were outlined in the in the court decision as well. The types of things that they receive, the student athlete assistance fund, and the academic enhancement. All of the things that have evolved over the years, just like we've seen things evolved in the amateurism for Olympic athletes as well. So, I, it would be great if more people understood the amount of support and the amount of benefits that student athletes actually do receive. In an enterprise that's very different from professional sports and would lose a lot of its character if it became professional sports. It would just become one more professional league, which is different, different from what it is now and the purpose of what it is now, which is education based, which is really what gets back to Alston. And this is all about educational expenses. And 
student athletes are athletes, but they're also earning an education in many ways, not just in the classroom. So obviously I opened with the sort of where does Alston lead? But I think if we look at the case, there's some questions there because the decision says, you know, supports Judge Wilkins' position that you can't limit educational related benefits. And as lawyers, as wordsmiths, how are we going to define educational related benefits? How far does it go? Is a laptop okay? Seems so. Is tutoring an educational benefit you can provide? Probably. Is a big screen TV in your house so that you can watch, you know, highlights of you playing? Is that an educational related benefit? I mean, where does it stop and who's the arbiter? And, th and that's what I think why it was so easy for Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion to sort of open the door. Because as you're defining what an educational benefit is, where does it go? And are Power Five conferences going to have a different way of defining it? Are their pocketbooks deeper than, you know, a lower division football program? Where do you think this, this leads? And do you think that definitional problem of educational related benefits gets resolved? I think there's going to have to be quite a bit of discussion on educational benefits and what they are and whether that's, you know, starting at the NCA national level and potentially at the conference level. But I think some cues will be taken from educational expenses based on the definition of, of aid, uh, federal aid might be a good place to start. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that, you know, we hadn't considered in the past that the cost of of flying into campus would be considered an educational expense, and that is now considered in the cost of attendance for a university. Um, so I think those are that's probably a good starting place. It's what is actually needed in order to be able to to ha access the education. Um, so yes, laptops are already you know something that's you know permitted in certain circumstances. I think that would be expanded. Uh, tutoring has always been, or for at least for many years, has been available. Things like that, but now we're looking at things like postgraduate education, like so a graduate school tuition, maybe there'll be a, you know, the, the limit on six years of financial aid might go away, um, unless that's a federal thing. That, that's something that we'll have to take into account as well. It's how this lines up with the federal rules on on providing the educational aid. Yeah, from the, from the, the institution side, that's a really, really hard question, because when you have something as broad as a term like that that's not defined, it's not, you know, it, it sounds like it would be common sense for those who are not in higher education, but you can have that really interpreted a number of different ways of what are, quote, support educational services. Um, you know, you, you even think about how, you know, how a qualified scholarship works for tax purposes, right? You know, it's those things that are, you know, necessary for the course of the educational program, right? Well, yeah, you know, obviously maybe you could consider a laptop, but what about the top of the line laptop? There's obviously $10,000. Is that the one that needs to be done? Um, are we talking about certain internships or fellowship opportunities that may be ingrained in the educational program? What about, you know, compensation that may result from that? Um, how is that going to be treated if every, you know, person on the, 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 the basketball team has a $50,000 summer internship? You know, uh, it's it becomes a really difficult, you know, sliding line because if you actually say that is there an educational tie-in to something, yeah, you can say that in a lot of ways, but it doesn't necessarily flow with what I'm sure of the Department of Education and IRS would have considered. So that's that's going to be something there's going to be a need to have some understanding about. 
um, whether it's state level and certainly across uh, the, the participating universities at, at the FBS and Division One level. You know what this reminds me of is the antitrust case against the NFL on free agency restrictions back in, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s, when, when the players said, I think they didn't decertify, but the union disclaimed its authority to represent. They went ahead, the players, they went ahead and won the antitrust suit. And then the settlement gets incorporated in a collective bargaining agreement. And then a uh, federal court uh, district judge in Minnesota, Judge Doty, oversaw it for a number of years. And I wonder if we're going to have something similar to this, because, you know, there's going to be a continuing back and forth for quite a while as to, well, what exactly are educational benefits? And you're going to have Judge Wilkin out in, I guess, Oakland or San Francisco, probably rendering a lot of decisions for, for a while to come. So even though the Alston case, as we've discussed, has a fairly limited decision, is a fairly limited decision just regarding educational benefits. The quote that I opened with from Justice Kavanaugh raises this whole issue of workers and labor and seems to be beyond the scope of what was before the court. And yet it opens up a door for perhaps, you know, maybe that Northwestern case could be brought again and those student athletes could be seen as labor with the ability to organize. I'm not sure, but what's most interesting about the case is afterwards, even though it wasn't part of the case, and Jeffrey Kessler even said they decided to go for a very limited review before the court, he said the NCAA will subject itself to further litigation if it comes out with its own NIL litigation. That's a really interesting place for him to have gone and it's as if he says, I know where the court's going to go. And maybe he does. Matt, you know, this is some of the stuff you've been talking about. Do you think the court is now open to sort of throwing their hands up in the air and telling the NCAA, you can't create comprehensive litigation? It's an antitrust violation. Only the schools and maybe the conferences are allowed to. Well, I think anything that would limit the economic benefits or compensation that student athletes would get, it. the pretty clear message from the majority decision is that is subject to antitrust challenge. And even if the NCAA is able to show that the particular rule or rules that are challenged are designed to further the distinction between college and professional sports, it can be struck down if there is a substantially less restrictive alternative. And I think that's what, you know, Jeffrey Kessler is saying, is that the restrictive aspects of NIL rights legislation at, you know, either the you know, divisional level, which is what the Board of Governors had wanted, divisions one, two, and three, to come up with their own rules, which they'll independently consider them, but they might look much the same, that that may well violate antitrust law. And I think it really casts into doubt is what sort of rules can you have regarding student-athlete eligibility at the national level, given that within the various divisions, if we just take the Autonomy Five conferences, there's national competition. And really, the essence of sport is that everyone plays by the same rules. And the message is, what's going to be too restrictive? You know, it could be on a case, it's subject to case-by-case -case antitrust challenge with, you know, as I said before, 
unpredictable result. It's hard, though, because you talk about the, the fair competition and everybody playing by the same rules. And you look at something like cost of attendance. And when that was being discussed, I mean, we started discussing that years ago when I was still on staff. And, and it, it was the reaction was always, it's going to be different by school. And that's not really fair. And I think the NCA has evolved to the point where it's not the rules aren't so much if I can't do it, you can't do it, but more, you know, what's in the best interest of the student athletes, but how do we still maintain some sort of level playing field, even if it's not always going to be equal. So the understanding with the cost of attendance is that it's going to be different by school, and that's going to be set by the individual institution as to what the cost is to attend that school. And the reason I say that, though, is, is that there's still a limit, there's still a top, right? It's whatever that, that cost of attendance is as determined by the school. And we have the decision now with educational expenses, and we're you know look to see how we can how we can gauge those. So to me, it seems like the the rules that could be enacted or enforced in terms of NIL would be things they have to have to not cap the ability for them to sell their name, image, and likeness or or benefit from that, but also protect the enterprise. And so, is that something where? Uh, competition with the school might be something that's permitted or the the non-recruiting aspect or the not pay for play. I think those are probably the areas where we might have the most chance of having some restriction. Um, what does that mean? You know, I don't know what that looks like, but, you know, if it's as long as it's not, you know, pay for play and it's not something where there are recruiting inducements because those get to the, the fundamental nature of what college athletics is all about and, and maintaining that fair playing field. But not easy to do, you know, especially with so many different schools and different types of programs. But I can see those types of very limited areas being potential limits, but um, but not that they won't be challenged, but I think those might be have the potential to be upheld. I think you're alluding to a very important point and distinction that happens in the national discussion when we're talking about student-athlete compensation. Like that, that, that term's thrown around a lot loosely. Like, you know, how do, how do we feel about student-athlete compensation? And it's missing the keywords from for from whom, you know, from whom is that compensation coming? Because there's a huge difference if that compensation is coming from third parties versus coming from the institution. There's already an inbred institution relationship from the education platform, obviously from the health and welfare platform, as far as those that people are training and uh, taking care of the athletes while they're in the field. But that's a big difference from someone who's actually a third party coming in and is now is really a purely a commercial transaction, you know, where we're doing something related to name, image, and likeness. Uh, so I think it's important that we look at the, the two different platforms. And you're absolutely right when we're talking about the concerns that happen on the university side about not having pay to play, but also not having some unsavory relationships. You know, there are some concerns. We're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-olds that are going to be entering these, these, these arrangements, you know, that obviously are something to be taken advantage of. They're not contract lawyers themselves. Uh, what, are, what are we doing as far as making sure that there's not um, this influx of, that if we see that at a particular university that there's some unsavory relationships or something that's being done uh, funneled through an illegal party or things like that, that there's an ability to step in um, and have some type of sanction there. So there are, you know, if you think from a common sense and a legal perspective, uh, some very good reasons why you would have that there. But, you know, I, I do think that's that distinction about, you know, having, the, you know, which I think is the frustration here, you know, that if we have all this money being generated from these high profile student athletes, why would they not be able to, uh, you know, have some type of financial gain from their own from their own performance? 
I think the key though is that it's the the high profile student athletes is it's a smaller group than most people are thinking. And there's a lot of student athletes who are not in that high profile group who are looking to benefit from the name image likeness, whether as an influencer or with a product they've created or writing a book or creating their own business or a fashion line or whatever it is, modeling. And those I think are things that people are really seeing as benefits for opening up NIL legislation and allowing them to do that. I think that that small group, that small subset of the very high level athletes who are going to be paid as if they were professional athletes, you can't separate it out, but you also can't make the rules for everybody the same because it's not going to apply to all. And that's, you know, where, where is that lowest common denominator, right? And how do you make it so that everybody can benefit in the way that makes sense for them um, without holding them back, but without also then changing everything for those who aren't in that that one top echelon position. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good point that I think both Allison and Tyrone made on this. The question is, who are you getting the benefits from? I mean, if we look at it right now, it strikes me as a pretty good balance. So, you know, the full attendance scholarship, plus, you know, there can't be any national restrictions on educational benefits. And then each student athlete is going to be able to maximize their income up to fair market value of their his or her individual NIL rights. The problem becomes is once we say there can't be any national limit on the amounts unrelated to education that schools can offer, that's when we, we're going to have a professional model. You know, we're going to have professionalized minor league sports, which I really hope doesn't happen. Justice Kavanaugh it seems blind to that distinction. But the other eight justices, I think, see it very, very clearly. I mean, if you look at it, he is a voice of one. And in my view, that is a clear, clear outlier position at this point. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, the real thing is going to be which of the lower court federal judges agree with this, because the question is going to be, you know, individual district court judges and federal appellate judges, because it might be another many, many years for the Supreme Court, you know, agrees to consider another intercollegiate case involving the application of antitrust law. If we can take anything from Alston, I would hope it's that the NCAA is not immune to antitrust laws. There is no antitrust exemption for the organization, which begs the question, haven't they learned a lesson? Because I think yesterday, Mark Emmert said, they're working on a new policy for NIL rules or an NIL solution was his language. Isn't that an invitation for more litigation at this point to start trying to establish standards when they don't have an antitrust exemption to potentially limit what a student athlete could earn? Well, it is, but you know, the, okay, let's look at the possibilities on NIL rights. The best thing would be Congress steps in and defines them, but they haven't done so yet. So now you're getting individual states doing so. And that's problematic for the NCAA because it's gonna be hard for any of the divisions to come up with the rule that complies with all of them, particularly since there's gonna be additional ones coming forward. And they're trying to say, hey, as Allison said, you know, a level, if not completely equal, playing ground. And that's why when we talked about before, I think they're moving towards more of a policy until hopefully Congress acts. They're going to say, 
comply with your own state's law, or if you don't have one, come up with your own, each school, individually, NIL rights on it. I guess it could be done at a conference level. And, you know, that might escape, you know, at least antitrust invalidation under Alston, but but we don't know that at this point. Yeah, I would add that. I, I think that Mark Emerson a, a very difficult position because, as Matt just mentioned, you have a number of states, you know, what we're a week away from all these things coming online, you know, and right now without, if the NSA did nothing, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have basically institutions in violation in several states. Um, and then, you know, do those, do those student athletes then file some type of suit to enjoin those rules from being enforced upon them? Uh, I think that, you know, it's going to be interesting with how this ends in the solution. Hopefully, you know, that I, we'll see if they actually come up with something before July, June 30th. Uh, I know that with the proposal that's been bandied about that's led by the SEC commissioner, which in part incorporates by its reference the respective state laws um, and the state requirements as to whether that's going to be the, the the barometer where you actually have, you know, kind of a blend between what the NCAA's preferences and the default being unless it's over, otherwise overruled by what is required under that state's NIL rule, which seems to be a potential compromise solution. We'll see if that actually comes forward, but you're absolutely right. If, if you can't have something where you're going to have literally, and, you know, in, in, as you think about the conferences being in the different states that they are and spread out, especially with realignment, uh, it will be a wild west as far as who's able to do what. So there, there has to be something. And, and, and to the point about inviting antitrust, absolutely it's going to. Um, but the question is always going to be with antitrust law, how, how reasonable is it considered? You know, if you have something that's an outright bar. Obviously, it's not going to be lenient. If you have something that's much more lenient and flexible, it's kind of consistent with the law that is being prescribed, then, you know, we'll see. But I think that, that the member institutions have to have something in place by July 1st. I agree. And and you can try to find a way to make it pro-competitive, you know, and pro the enterprise and, and you know, in a way that is as limiting as, as non-limiting as possible. But, you know, as Tyrone said, you know, if you have a student athlete who's from one state and at school in another state and competing in a third state, which state law applies? Um, we don't know. There's really no, you know, is it where they are? Is it where they're from? Is it where they're competing? Whose name they're wearing on their chest? So there's just a lot of confusion here. And so I think there has to be some parameters. And yes, there will be challenges to those. Um, but you also can't not do what what's right and what's best for the student athletes because you know somebody's going to challenge it because there's always lawsuits against the NCA. Unfortunately, I'd love that to change, but I think you have to really be thoughtful about what this means and how to be as broad and encompassing as possible, but not putting the student athletes in in such a difficult position to have to figure out where their what law applies to them or or what they can and can't do. There has to be some some sort of parameters, and I think you know it's what I mentioned before. You know the the recruiting aspect. It's what Tyrone mentioned about who pays them. I think those types of things are legitimate um, and maybe it's best practices and maybe it's actual restrictions, but there has to be some sort of capsule around this for student athletes to even be able to figure it out and get started. Otherwise, it's just way too broad and, and leaves them open for issues. Um, and, and frankly, there has to be a lot of education for the student athletes. This is kind of a side note, but you know, we're we're in a conference that only provides need-based aid. We do not have athletic scholarships. So everybody, anybody who's getting money at all from the university has some level of need, financial need. So now you have student athletes who can be making money and jeopardizing their financial aid to the university. 
Um, so would they take a gig for $500 if they knew it could cost them their Pell Grant federally? If, if Where are they at the limit? So it's there has to be some sort of guidance, education, but also some parameters for students to understand what this means. Because as I think Tyrone said before, they're not contract lawyers. They've they've never done anything like this before. And they're also trying to go to school at the same time. So how can we how can we help them with this and allow them to profit as much as possible and not be restricted, but but not have this be all encompassing and take over their lives in a way that they're not equipped to handle right now. No, it's interesting because I had a mentee a few years ago who was at a big uh, major law school. And the second summer, she had a job at a big law firm and came to find that she wasn't going to get as much money in her scholarship grants because of that. So why should it be any different if I'm a if I'm an athlete at a member institution and all of a sudden, you know, I do a commercial and for a local car dealer and I get something of value, that's part of my income. And that should be, uh, you know, that should count against whatever grants I may get. Now, I don't know how that works out in a, a power five school, for example, where you're getting a scholarship that pays for everything. And now you go out and, you know, the offensive line at a school says, hey, we go to Mel's Hofbrau every Thursday. It's a great place. Come down and eat. These kids each get a, you know, a little walking money in their pocket and a free meal. Is that really impacting anything? I think the question that has to be looked at in terms of this NIL issue is what is the impact, not just to the athlete, but to the institution. And is the institution going to be losing sponsorship money? And how much of an economic impact does it have? And anecdotally, I've been asking people for the last year who are up in arms about this and saying, all right, name me five last season. Let me five Division I football players. And pretty much people went, Trevor Lawrence and and those three guys at Alabama and, and, and then you say, well, name me a NCAA basketball player. And they go, uh, 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 it doesn't seem that you have so many transcendent stars that are going to make that big of an impact on what conferences and member institutions are receiving. I could be wrong, but I think what I would hope, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is that, what NIL legislation may actually do is legitimize what's been going on in college sports since the 30s. And that is the old, oh, I sure would like to go home to see my mom. And then after the game, there's a plane ticket in your locker. Let's not be Pollyanna. We know it's been going on for years. Doesn't NIL sort of open up the opportunities for people to be above board and to benefit from this small window because of the thousands of college athletes that spend this time between 18 to 22 with having fame to a certain level in college, the tiniest percent go on to a professional career. So why can't they make a little on their collegiate fame? Well, I think everyone agrees with that. That, that's the, the question is, what are going to be the restrictions? 
I mean, some in Congress, the, 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 the most recent bill in the Senate Commerce Committee, there are, one side of the aisle says student athletes, it's too much of a restriction for student athletes to actually have to disclose the terms of their NIL rights deal. I mean, how can you possibly determine whether, you know, it's fair market value because of your athletic fame as opposed, you know, the, the example is like, let, let's say everyone else is getting, you know, $10,000 for it, but the star quarterback is getting 100000 that 90000 looks like it's, you know, under the table pay for play on it. So that, that the question isn't really so much, everyone agrees, yes, they ought to have rights. It ought to be determined by fair market value. But what are the restrictions? Uh, one of the ones who testified before the Senate hearing two weeks ago, will remain nameless, said even requiring student athletes to have an educational seminar to understand that, yeah, this is going to be taxable. That in and of itself is an undue restriction. It's paternalism. So the question is, what gets, you know, what are the limitations on the exercise of that right? That, that's really what the key issue is going to be on that issue. Well, you bring up paternalism and, and in loco parentis, I mean, isn't that the, where the university systems were founded? And, and that goes back and forth over the years, you know, where what's the responsibility of the institution to the students versus, you know, how much are they grown adults and, and be able to handle things on their own? But, you know, you're, you mentioned before the, the universities are a piece of this as well, and the universities are the ones running these programs. And so where does this NIL piece intersect with the program? And where does it intersect with the university? And when you talk about boosters giving money to student athletes, if they're recruiting those student athletes and bringing them in, is it is it the boosters then who are running the show? Or are the coaches actually choosing the ones that they want to recruit? And so, I mean, it's just there's so many ways that this could take over the university's program um, in a way that, you know, you start looking at is this truly the same type of program that it was before or is it really run by outside and is it what matt said some sort of quasi minor league and do do the programs get detached from the universities because most universities can't sustain some set a model like that so how do you how do you try to make it work so it still remains part of the educational enterprise yeah i think that's a great point um and, and actually kind of it actually kind of Taking that point and actually your your initial question about us being Pollyannish about what's going on in the past, you know, if we're if we're gonna address the pink elephant in the room, let's address it on both sides because I think this this notion that if you have name, image, likeness, compensation, that the quote black market of compensation of student athletes automatically goes away, I think is a little bit Pollyannish too. Um, that the there is a number of folks, and this has been proven in some of the cases where you've had the undue influence. There's a number of folks who actually want to have influence with athletes, who enjoy having that that intersection with athletes and want to have personal influence. It has nothing to do with I want to have you, you know, I want to engage you uh, for this. You know, I think everybody thinks about, you know, kind of the romanticism of this person wants to have an apparel deal or some type of soft drink deal or that type of thing. That's not the issue for, for a lot of these folks. It's about the fact that they're trying to have influence with certain people in high level sports programs, whether it's the the offensive lineman, to, to go to Allison's point, that's not always a star athlete, whoever it may be, that there's that influential point of supporting the program. And then that does go to how that affects the institution's control over a program. It does go to undue influence for recruiting. It does go to a lot of you know ethical conduct issues, which are very legitimate. So 
Um, I, I think we have to make sure that, you know, on the hard side that, we, you know, obviously that's a concern, you know, as far as making sure that, um, you know, what's the purpose of the compensation. But I think we're turning a blind eye about what the motive of some of the folks who have done that has been. Yeah. And and just to follow up on that, I mean, the one of the founding principles of the NCAA is institutional control. And that's, you know, that has to be at the core of the things that we do. And if that goes away, well, then, you know, you have a completely different system. So how far does this go? And, and is it really something that should go quite that far? I mean, you want student athletes to be able to do the same things that other students can do. And that means that they can be influencers and be paid and they can be paid if they're a star athlete, you know, if they have this talent and this market value, just like a cellist or somebody like that. And I think that's important. But you have to remember that this is all still part of the school, right? And this is all still has to be under the institutional control. So uh, I, I think I cut you off, Matt, but that's that's something to really keep in mind. No, that's a really important point. And here's the thing that kind of concerns me. Will we start seeing endorsement deals where it says how much you're going to get is going to depend upon how you perform this year? If, let's say, you're a Heisman finalist or, you know, you get the Wooden Award. Or look at the pressure this could put on student athlete. It's like going, well, I mean, it could be a statistically based thing. Or let's say someone gets injured. Uh, there, there could be the incentive to rush back perhaps too soon. You'd hope the team physician and athletic trainer says, nope, you're not ready. You're not going to go back. Well, but I have to. You know, I have to play an X number of games. Or someone gets benched, which we know happens. Um, number of years ago, the quarterback, uh, who is it, I think Jalen Hurt, transfers and stuff. I could see all kinds of things. And it's not irrational for an endorser to say, if I'm going to be paying a lot of money to someone, I'm going to want to make sure that I'm getting full value for it. So it's going to be really interesting and quite frankly, concerning how some of these endorsement deals get structured. Then the other side of the coin is, they're going to be able to hire agents or advisors, you know, to figure out what's fair market value. How do we comply with any things? And I, boy, I hope that market is, you know, carefully regulated and it's only, you know, ethical, competent people. There are so many moving parts to this. And for someone who teaches sports law, I mean, it's great to attract students because there's going to be lots of jobs. There are going to be so many legal issues, uh, such a need for, for really good lawyers. You know, Matt actually has a great, has a great point about the, um, the the value to endorser uh, to, to endorsers of student athletes. I always like to turn the the, the viewpoint in that. Like, you know, you, we talked about the example of uh, you know those people who, who knew a Trevor Lawrence in the past year. What if we take it back a year before that, and you had you know one of the top six picks in the draft was Justin Herbert, the quarterback of the Los Angeles Chargers, quarterback of the University of Oregon. You know, you can imagine that Justin Herbert just on a casual, not at a football game, uh, but like on the street, uh, just wearing an Under Armour T-shirt, right? And doing an interview, you know, with his Under Armour T-shirt, you know, kind of using some publicity, using his social endorsements. At the University of Oregon, Will Phil Knight was a longtime standing member of the Board of Trustees. How does that play out with the institutional relationship of the University of Oregon, which clearly has ties with Nike? Uh, so... I think you have that on both sides of things. What happens when you have a university that is so either because of governance or because of commercial relationship is so intertwined with something that actually conflicts with something an athlete does? How does that get measured? How does that get handled? Right. I mean, that's a great point. When I was at Florida State, we had a Nike deal and we had a, a student athlete at a post-game press conference with his Under Armour t-shirt on. 
and it was his lucky shirt. And I don't know how it got through so many people to get onto camera, but we certainly heard about it from Nike. And you know, you say yes, that's institutional interest, but the Nike deal provides all of the gear and equipment that the student athletes need in order to be able to get out on the field and, and participate. Otherwise, I'm not sure that most schools could really, you know, buy piece by piece everything that's needed to have the the full complement of, of gear and equipment. So, you know, it's a really good point. So do you think that as we start fluffing this whole, all these issues out, using the example of the Nikes and the Under Armors and the Adidas sponsoring teams, that when you're recruited to, let's say, a Nike school, there's a possibility that you could have a summer internship at Nike. Is that going to cause a problem? Is that really that internship educationally related? Or is it, well, Nike's given the school $25 million and now they're sort of buying the athletes. I mean, I know you all are, we're all aware of this, but finding that line, you know, what is it and how are you going to get to it? And, you know, it's great that Commissioner Stanky and the SEC is all excited about it. Well, there the six states that have passed NIL litigation represent seven of the SEC conference schools. It's a little different for, you know, him to make a statement like that. And now we have California has moved up its date to, hope, I think, September 1. Oregon, I think, just this week is passing legislation. So you sort of look at all of these at these moving parts and you have to ask yourself, where's the control? And it seems to me that the only control is now at the member institution level because everybody, I would think, is concerned about buying into litigation. And maybe if each school says, this is our rules for our athletes, that's the safe bet. But is a conference a safe bet or is that also going to be subject to antitrust legislation? You know, I, I think, you know, we. it seems like it's a small enough subset, but you never know. I mean, I think there's people who are looking to profit off this in any way they can, whether to help it or to hurt it. So, I mean, you mentioned all of the details and trying to figure it all out. And that's why we are where we are, because if you think about, you know, a thousand plus member institutions trying to come to some sort of consensus on what the best rules are in certain area in every area governing college athletics, that's why things take so long to move because the rules aren't created by Mark Emmert and his staff. The rules are created and voted on and, 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 and changed you know, by the member institutions. So this is all work by committee and that takes some time too and trying to find that one size fits all solution when we know that one size really never fits all is is a challenge. So I mean, that you highlight that perfectly. That's why we are where we are now, because everybody's trying to get to the point where it's perfect and you know it's never going to be perfect. Um, so how do you find the best option to support and protect the student athletes and give them the opportunity, but still maintain the character of amateur college athletics and still allow the institutions to have the control over their individual programs? It's tough. It's tough. You know, and I think I think we're at, at the institutional level are hoping for some guidance and some support because it's already going to be a lot, even if there are NCAA rules. But then you, if you take those away and say, okay, it's up to you, then you're going to have to figure out first, what is your school and your institution going to allow in first overall? And then the state and all of the other pieces that come into play um, while you're still trying to put games on the field and, and support your program internally and the rest of your day job. So it's going to be definitely interesting times. Yeah, and I would think that 
given the nature of athletic boosters, alumni that want to support their school in many ways, and some have been a little, let's say, too aggressive in the past. And now we're sort of at this point where I don't think enough conversation is being had about the distinction between what NIL will provide. And nobody really wants to talk about the boosters anymore, like they've been controlled. One of my concerns is that there are a lot of boosters who might think, oh, this makes it a lot easier for me to funnel cash to athletes. It's a big question. And if we're in a situation where, as it would appear, absent federal legislation, we're kind of in the Wild West. Now, there's always been rules regarding boosters and you know what they can and can't do. But I think it's been getting a little muddy with the opening of these discussions on name, image, and likeness rights. And, you know, again, we've talked about this, but I'm a booster. And instead of, you know, giving this guy a car or something, I can say, oh, I'm just hiring him to work at my auto dealership and he gets to drive a car around. Is that going to be acceptable? Or is that, you know, what? where are we going to find that line? And how is it going to be decided? I don't think any of us know, but we're kind of in a wild west again given the fact that the NCAA has been somewhat limited in its institutional control efforts by Alston. Well, I think, yeah, that's really the question is, you know, who's going to get to make the rules here? You know, one of the big differences is President Emmert does not have best interest power like the major league sports commissioners. So he can't say, okay, I'll consider all the views. Here's what it's going to be. The, the Board of Governors doesn't even have that autonomy on it. That, that's one of the big differences. And one of the things I think is interesting is in Justice Gorsuch's opinion. He says, well, the NCAA is subject to antitrust law. How can you resolve this? You can go to Congress, try to get some sort of an exemption, or you can try to reach an agreement with someone on behalf of the players. But yet we don't, you know, since the players can't unionize, you don't have the statutory, non-statutory labor exemption. So even if you could sit down with, let's say, Jeff Kessler on behalf of the players and they work something out with the NCAA or at least a segment, there's still someone that's going to be unhappy and bring an antitrust challenge. And we don't know how that's going to come out. So this is really a rubric's cube. It's, you look at it from all the angles and it is unless Congress acts, we, we can't say we're going to come up with a uniform rule that's not subject to antitrust challenge. That's kind of the bottom line today. All right, before we go, not that I'm going to do the quick hits, but what do you think happens with college football this fall on this issue? Each get a shot at answering this question because I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm just concerned that a student athlete might not really understand the rules and the institution may not be providing enough education and could lose his or her eligibility. And that's the worst case scenario. But how do you get those guidelines and how do you get that messaging out as we approach what so many people are thinking, oh, name, image, and likeness now. There's agencies that represent universities. There's representatives of the students can get a representative. It seems that we're a little bit behind on the truly the educational aspect of what it all means. And I'm just want to know how you guys think it's going to, what may happen this fall. 
can I do the complete lawyer answer here? <laughs> I expect injunctive actions on both sides. I, I really do. I mean, just given how the clock is played on this, I think there's going to be, you know, some federal arguments that the NCAA member institution is going to actually bring up to try and join the applicability of these laws in the respective states that are expected to go out July 1st. And similarly, I expect some some student athletes to try to join the current NCAA bylaws if they stay as is, uh, which don't prohibit, which don't allow NIL type deals to see if that can be enjoined so that they can actually retain their eligibility. Uh, so I think we're going to be in a state of more litigation, quite frankly, uh, even more in the fall on both of these issues on both sides. At some point, you know, maybe this, this gets to a point that I think we actually start seeing push towards some type of legislation, which seems like almost the obvious answer, possibly. But I, I just see this being a very litigated principle. And I, I you know, uh, it's going to be difficult to see it cleanly operating in the fall, but we'll see. Allison, Matt, care to weigh in? Yeah, I, you know, I agree with Tyrone. I think, you know, we're likely to see litigation on both those issues. I think there's going to be a lot of caution exercise. I, I think just be as, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic, how much money is really going to be out there? And just like I'm not sure schools are going to be rushing to provide additional educational benefits, and perhaps we're going to have sponsors and, you know, being rather careful here. You know, no one's really certain what the rules are. You certainly don't want to enter into a deal with someone that, you know, you just obliterate the value of your sponsorship if they don't comply with whatever rules might be in place and they lose their eligibility. So I think that this might be particularly in the fall, a period of caution. Uh, by the end of the year, it gets worked out. If I'm a college basketball player, I'm feeling a little bit better about this. More likely I would benefit football players. I don't know. It's you know, I think there's going to be a little bit of caution, perhaps. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said, the caution and, and the litigation. There'll definitely be litigation. Um, that seems to be the norm for a while now. But I think, you know, on the campus side of things, we're looking at how do we educate our student athletes? So whether it's in-house or you're bringing in one of the many firms that has popped up or many of the firms that, you know, we already work with have um, created different divisions to to help with the educational piece. And I think it's going to depend on, you know, what your program's like and what your staff is like and do you have the the bandwidth to be able to do that and and the and the information you know we're all still waiting you can't educate when you don't know what the rules are um, or what the landscape looks like so it's it's uh it's a lot of planning to try to get ready for what we don't know is going to happen and and I think that we have a an idea of what could likely happen and so we're starting in that in that way but that's that's going to be pretty much all summer and just making sure that the student athletes know, okay, before you do anything, just check with us. You know, if somebody reaches out to you, let's, let's talk about this. We don't want to put you in any jeopardy, not knowing where things stand and just trying to make sure they have at least that message um, as we get the education ready for them. But, but yeah, it's, there's going to be um, all sides happening all at the same time on this. Bobby, you got to give your opinion now. Oh, my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to give yours. Well, first of all, I'm going to make one bold prediction that football stadiums are going to be full this fall. I don't know how bold that is. <laughs> Once those stadiums are full and that money starts rolling in, money's going to roll in from everywhere else. And what that means is there's going to be a lot of action. The courts are going to get busy. Lawyers are going to get busy. And I think it's a time where a lot of lawyers are going to be faced with the lawyerly answer of, I don't know. 
but we can make this argument by analogy to other things, which is what we're trained to do. I think that my fear is what I alluded to earlier, that you'll have a student athlete not understand and impact that student's eligibility. And that's the real tragedy of this, is that you're creating a situation that people don't really understand because it's so nuanced. And because of that, the impact on those who will be affected, truly affected the athlete, that's where my concern lies. Uh, and we'll see what happens. You know, my opinion, yeah, you have a short window and you're not going to be a professional in your sport. And if you could make a little pocket money, a little walking around money as a student athlete to help, that would be great. And as I alluded to earlier, I still don't think that this has the kind of impact where universities are going to lose all their sponsorship, all their money, because they're just going to target athletes. Obviously, that's not the case because part of the cachet of the advertiser from a media perspective is the school identity. And I don't see any scenario where the athletes can make money in the school gear using the school marks. And we'll just have to see. But it's going to be an interesting fall. And for you, Allison, as an administrator, it's going to be a good good ride for you. Tyrone, you better hire some new associates for the firm. <laughs> and Matt, you got more to teach to your students. It's going to be very interesting. So thank you all so much for taking the time to talk about this. Uh, you know, we've pulled the thread on the sweater a little bit, but there's a lot more pulling to be done. And uh, maybe we'll get together again in six months or a year and see where we've where we've come and where we've we've gotten to and how many more decisions Judge Wilkin in the Ninth Circuit gets to play with because people seem to love to get in her courtroom. So thank you all very much and we'll uh, catch up soon. And for information on the Sports Lawyers Association, please go to sportslaw.org, join the organization, find out more about us. Thank you all for today.